scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 17, beginning with verse 1 and extending through the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your, li- your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house 
or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he circumcised in the flesh of, he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you guide us now? Would you open the ears, our ears and our hearts and by your word and spirit that in your light may we may see light, in your truth find freedom, in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. How can I be sure that God will be there for me? What if I let God down? What if I make a mess of my life? Those are familiar questions. And maybe they've been questions that have marked your life or maybe they do today. Ian Duguid is a professor who captures very well the setting and that quest set of questions the setting of our text and those questions with words from a song entitled Stony Ground by Paul Field. Surely this is cloudy water for turning into wine. Surely the most sour and bitter of the grapes upon your vine. I don't mean to sound ungrateful, Lord, you know, but even with the strength I've found, In all your power and goodness, Lord, there must be some mistake, for I am weak, Lord, so very weak, and I will only let you down. Those are the kinds of doubts and questions that this next part of Abram's story deal with. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, of course you do. Those questions are legit and very real. There may be times in your life where you feel about God the way a former wife did about her former husband. He wanted me to be who he thought I was and not who I truly was. That makes for a hard life, a hard marriage. But it's not a stretch to think that there are elements of that that bleed their way into our own thinking. Does God think I'm somebody that I'm not? That had to be Abram's posture. We'll come to that as we come to the text. But what we're going to find, what Abram found, and what this text shouts to us today is that God is faithful to keep his covenant even when we come up short. God is faithful to keep his covenant 
even when we come up short. That's what we need to rehearse and ponder and hold on to and embrace today. And that comes at us in this text. I'm tempted to call this text in front of us a Mount Everest. A Mount Everest of the Old Testament. But the reality is, whatever text is in front of you at any given moment could be a Mount Everest. But there's certainly a lot going on here that gives us pause and, and reason to linger over this chapter beyond what we will do together today. We're going to look at it in three different headings. Uh, God steps into our doubts. And when he does, God removes the grounds of those doubts. And he replaces them with the promise that elicits a response. God steps into our doubts. That's good to hear because questions and doubts come and stay. They don't just go away when we wake up the next day. When God steps into our doubts, he does so in a timely way. That's the first characteristic of how God steps into the center of our doubts. He does so in a timely fashion. Uh, we, we read that <clears throat> Abram is 99 years old as we open this particular text. And if you remember back or even look back, uh, Abram was 86 years old when Sarai bore Ishmael. And so there have been 13 long years between those two episodes of when the promise was sealed and, and declared and, and a son was born, and now for 13 years, nothing. God has been silent, so to speak, indicating those 13 years, plenty of time for, for Abram to reflect on his own unfaithfulness to God. You remember that, right? God, he's gotten a few things right, but he's gotten quite a few things wrong. And for 13 silent years, uh, the, the questions only, only increase and only multiply. They don't dissipate. They don't fade. They just, they linger and they grow questions and doubts about, am I really who God wants me to be? Is it, is it? conceivable, so to speak, <laughs> that, that God would use me and my family for his purposes. Plenty of sleepless nights, no doubt, reflecting on his own failures. And it's into that problem, into that 13-year-in-the-oven kind of baking that God comes. He comes in a timely way. And what we can certainly agree is that God's timing, though not always our own, is right on time. I would suggest to you, as I've thought about this, <clears throat> why 13 years? I mean, that is a long time. I mean, three years would have been a long time. 13? Can you think back that far? What was going on 13 years ago? That's a long, long time. But it was a, it, it, that's what it took, apparently, for Abram to be totally convinced that he was totally dependent upon God. 
And he was not the remedy. He was not the solution. So Abram gets to the end of a rope. And guess who's there? God in his perfect timing. And I think we can take, a, take something away from that. That when you are wondering, when we are wondering, why does this take as long as it does? To know that God's timing is perfect as he accomplishes his purposes. It's timely. But it's also personal. When he shows up, he steps into the center of Abram's doubts and ours in a timely way. But he does so in a personal way. You remember back to last chapter, chapter 16, when we encountered the angel of the Lord. And there's good reason to think that that's language representing a, what, what's called a theophany, where God appears. But by the time we get to chapter 17, there's no mistaking this time it's not an angel of the Lord. It is the Lord. And the word that we encounter in, in verse 1 of chapter 17 actually is introduced in the Exodus when God declares who he is. He says, I'm a God, I'm your God, and I have a name, and my name is Yahweh. He does have a name. That's his covenant name to his people. And that's the word that's imported into chapter 17 here. Genesis actually was written after the events of Exodus. Don't want to shock you with that, but, but the reality is what we have in Genesis is the explanation of who we are as we come out of Egypt. This is the story. And so the, the, the label and the name, not the label, but the name Yahweh is incorporated here in a very personal way. It's like this. God sometimes sends ambassadors or emissaries, and sometimes he shows up himself. And that's what Abram has encountered here. When we read, the very first thing that Abram hears in his doubts is, I am the Lord. I am God Almighty. That's who we're encountering. I am God Almighty. He comes personally. He comes in a timely way. He comes personally. Actually, that's just good to know that God comes into your doubts, into your questions, not only in a timely way, but he comes personally. He meets you there. And he says, look at me. That's what Abram's experiencing. It's timely, it's personal. And when he comes, thirdly, he comes Powerfully with words. Powerfully with words. He, he declares some things. Not only who he is, but what he will do. I will, I will. I will. Did you hear that? Go back and read it later and mark it with a pen. I will, I will. Repeatedly and recurringly. He comes with words. The first thing, <clears throat> it's actually what we, what, we, what we have in this passage is basically a divine monologue. There's not a lot of dialogue here. Abram does say some things, and he's saying it to himself. He, you, you will catch that if you read closely, that what Abraham says, by the time his name is changed, he's not, he's not challenging God's promise the way Sarah did, Sarai, but he's mumbling to himself. It's God doing the talking here. It's God laying it out, saying, I am here, and this is what I will do, and this is what you are to do. 
Abram, you are to walk before me. That is your task, is to walk before me. That's a term and a verb that we've run into a few times in Genesis. It was used of the Lord God in the garden, walking. It was used of Enoch, who walked with God. It was used of Noah, one who walked with God. It's a reminder, it's a, it's a word picture that reminds us that all of life is an ongoing pilgrimage. It's one step in front of the other. That's the walk, and that's language that the Apostle Paul uses to describe our walk. We are to walk in response to who he is and what he's done. A journey, moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision, always coming back to the center. Walk before me. Abram, walk before me and be blameless. <laughs> well, how do you think he heard that one? Think about this for a minute. He's had these 13 long years to remember and to recognize that he had repeatedly been missing faith, integrity, courage, consistency, and obedience. And, and curiously, it's that integrity that, that, that God singles out. When he uses the word blameless, it was used of Noah in chapter 6, the root behind that word is whole and integrated. And what, what God is driving at is, Abram, from this point forward, walk before me and live a, an integrated life. Not a, not a sinless life, but one that's integrated and whole, that you're not one way here and another way there, or that you're pretending to be somebody that you're not in, in order to be accepted. Don't pretend. But to bring that together in a, in a life that is integrated, it is whole, you're not one way here and another way there, but live before me in a blameless, in that sense, integrated or whole life. And together we will walk forward into this good thing that's before you. Abram is to be wholly dedicated to God's cause. That's what's before him. So he steps into Abram's doubts and hours and questions right into the center in a timely way, in a personal way, and powerfully with words which is just what we need on any given day, is for God to step into our world, into our questions, or maybe even our doubts, in a timely way, in a personal way, with words. And that's what we come to next. What are those words all about? Because as he steps into the center of our doubts, he, he removes the grounds of our doubts. He comes right through the, bursting through the door to say, this is who I am. This is who you are. And the first thing that he does in removing the grounds of, of, of our doubts is that he clarifies the promise. You see that in verse 2 when he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant with you. That's the promise. We're going back to this 
notion that was introduced a couple of chapters ago. It was inaugurated, we might say, in chapter 15, that very vivid picture of the animals. Remember that one, the animals cut in half? Go back and look at that. That's where the covenant is visually demonstrated and introduced and inaugurated. But we might say that what's going on here is that covenant is being ratified or confirmed. And Abram, you have a part in this. And we'll get to that. It's a covenant. You see, God has revealed himself as a covenant-making God. That is who he is. If there was any doubt about what this chapter is about, the word covenant appears 12 times. 12. It is a big deal. It is the central notion that, that, that is before us today that the God that we worship today at the heart is a covenant-making God. A covenant we've talked about before is, a, <clears throat> is, uh, is an agreement is an agreement forged. It's one that's, that's put in place. It is um, a defining document in some senses or a defining relationship that God has pledged himself. And here are the terms. I am a covenant-making God. At the heart of it, the, the, the benefits that are always a part of a covenant you see in verses 7 and 8, in its most basic form, the benefits of the covenant that God extends is this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's it. I will be your God, and you will be my people. What is, that's the promise that God has made to us. When somebody asks you, what is this gathering on Sunday morning all about? What do you do there? Why do you do that? Well, our God is a covenant-making God who, who has declared that he will be our God and we will be his people. And that's what we do as we gather, is to gather around that pledge and that promise and the faithfulness of the one who made it. He removes the grounds of our doubts by clarifying the promise. I will be your God and your doubts and your questions and your unfaithfulness don't threaten that promise. They don't undermine it. It's not contingent upon your abilities. It's contingent solely on my abilities to fulfill the covenant that we have made together. And we really begin to see it as he removes the grounds of our doubts, not merely by clarifying the promise, but by granting a new name. It gets that personal. You know, names for us are labels. Probably the most time we think about names is when we're choosing one for an offspring. Labels. What are we going to call this person? What are we gonna, when we want them to come, what will we say? <laughs> what, what label will we give this one? Sometimes it's a family name that has some meaning. Biblically, the naming always meant a bit more than that. It had something to do with the person. 
so that names were not interchangeable based on preferences. They were assigned, and they, and they revealed something about the person. So, for example, Abram, who has been named Abram, it's an ancient West Semitic name that means exalted father. He certainly wasn't the only Abram walking around Canaan. But that was the name that he had been given, exalted father. And God meets him and says, hey, Abram, with all your doubts, with all your questions, with all your unfaithful tendencies, I have a new name for you. And it means father of many nations. That's my pledge to myself, to you. That's guaranteeing my, my faithfulness to fulfill the promise that I'm making to you. You're no longer Abram. You are the father of many nations. How do you suppose Abram's new name went over at the, on the town square? Oh, yeah, no, I'm not Abram anymore. Abraham, father of many nations. Do <laughs> you think he had the guts to... Say that? I think he did. I think he was willing to take the name assigned to him because he knew it was, he was beginning to learn and it was beginning to become reality to him. Hey, this is not about me. This is about a God who has promised something. And Sarai, her name is now Sarah, verse 15. That's an older and newer word for the same word, meaning princess. But, but she is brought specifically into the promises now. And there's some common language. Did you hear it? Abram, Abraham, from you, nations and kings will, kings will come from you. Not to you. They will come from you. And Sarah, kings will come from her. There's something big going on here. And in the naming of the renaming of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, there's a built-in pledge that this is bigger than you. Those doubts that you've had, I'm removing the grounds of those doubts. You have a new name, Abraham and Sarah. You see, the covenant changes their status, a fact which requires a new name, that will point to the promise. Their names were promise-bearing names. They were no longer, if they ever were, merely labels. They were promises. He removes the grounds of their doubts by declare, clarifying the promise, by, by granting a new name, and by sealing his promise with a sign. That's the third way that he removes the grounds of the doubts. He, 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 he lays before them and says, here, this is for you. It's a sign. After all of these, and now we're getting to Abraham's responsibility. Because after all of these, I will, I will, I will, the, the primary requirement that Abraham now has is to bear the sign of God's faithfulness to the covenant, not his own. 
That's what circumcision was. It was a sign of God's faithfulness to his promise. He says, Abram, this is the right. I said this chapter is about covenant. You might say it's about circumcision too because that word appears 10 times. It's a big deal. It's what's before us. It's what's laid before Abraham now and says, this is your response, that you do have a role to play and a responsibility. And the primary responsibility is to bear the sign. It's to take the mark. I have a wedding ring <clears throat> that has probably been off of my um, fourth finger on the left hand maybe a dozen times for maybe 20 minutes total. Total. For quite a while. The, the, it, it is a sign that points to something. And when I look at my wedding ring, it's my reminder of the pledge that I made to Mary Lynn to be faithful to her. I don't look at that and think of her pledge. I think of mine. You know, glad she has one too. But the reality is the sign points to something and in this case, the sign that is given to Abraham is not to remind him of his pledge, is to remind him of God's pledge. Do you remember flashback to the animals cut in half? You remember that story, that, that scene where, where essentially when the covenant was cut, that the promise was, if I let down my end of the bargain, Two, two people making that pledge would walk between the animals together. But in that case, you remember, it wasn't two. It wasn't Abraham. It was a smoking pot to, to, to signify that if God fails in his covenant, he is the one that would be cut in half. Does that begin to give you an idea of why circumcision involved cutting. Abraham, it's not you who will be cut off, but you are to bear the symbol and the sign of my pledge to be cut off when this covenant breaks down. I will be the one who is cut off. You will bear it in your skin and on your body to remind yourself on an ongoing basis of my pledge to be cut off when this covenant is broken. That's staggering and that's big. That's central to, to help us understand what God is doing and why circumcision. You know, circumcision was not a, a novelty in that culture at that time. In fact, if you read, read along, you'll remember that it was the Philistines that were that were that were mocked because they weren't circumcised. They were the only ones that weren't. But all the other people was a common marker from going from boyhood to manhood. That's what it symbolized in, that cult, in those cultures at that time. That's why it was commonly practiced. So when, when Abraham hears the word circumcised, he doesn't say, uh, what's that? No, he knows exactly what that is. But what's new here is the meaning of it. And so it's taking something and filling it full of meaning and significance for Israel that it had nowhere else. 
And that is that sign, that's a sign not of maturing from age whatever to another. It's a sign of my faithfulness to you. To be in covenant is to have God's name placed on you. So Abraham had a new name. Sarah had a new name. And in Christ, you have a new name placed upon you. That's why as we move through the scriptures and we get to the New Testament, we're not practicing that kind of circumcision for those purposes. The hospitals will do that for medical reasons, maybe. But what we practice here is the continuation of that. And it's not a gender specific right called circumcision. It's a broadly practiced and embraced sacrament of baptism. A ritual is something, and a rite is something that you do ritually. A sacrament is something that has a significance and is a sign and, and is pointing to something. That's the difference. And when we get to the New Testament, what we see is what was placed on believers and the children of believers and the reasons placed on children and that's another subject for another day but it touches on it here and that is it didn't save. Ishmael was circumcised the same day as as Abraham the very same day and yet we don't see anything of a heart regenerated or a heart touched by grace in Ishmael we don't see that at all it's a sign that brings someone into the covenant but it, does, but it requires a saving faith. In the case of Abram, his, was, his saving faith was chapter 14. It's already happened, and now there's a sign that goes with it. And so that's why when we talk about baptism here, we don't talk about it being the sign of your faith. We, we talk about it a response to God's faithfulness to his promises. It, it never saved. Circumcision didn't. Baptism doesn't. And in both cases, both then and now, male or female, whatever the age, baptism points to the reality and the need for a renewed, circumcised heart. A circumcised heart. They had to one day uh, get saving faith as well, which is why they were ready and, and able to, to, to implement this sign of the covenant on those in his household. So he moves toward us in our doubts. He removes the grounds of our doubts. And then he elicits a response. You know, that uh, circumcision, or in our case, baptism, is intended to serve as a sign of faith and salvation that we would one day step into children that you'd one day grow up into your baptism and 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 express your faith in the one who is faithful but that baptism or in this case the circumcision served as a continual prod or reminder or witness about your responsibility to grasp and to take hold of the promise by faith That's really what faith is. Theologians will call faith an instrument, an instrument by which we take hold of something. That's what we we take hold of with, sort of like an oven mitt. 
taking something hot out of the oven. The faith is that knit. It is that instrument by which we take hold of the promises of God, not because they're too hot to handle, they're too good to believe. And we take hold of those promises by faith. And that's, that's what we have seen in Abraham, and that's what we will see in those that come from him, and including us. So it elicits a response. The first response is in verse 3, where Abram hears these words. Before it's all spelled out, Abram does what? He falls on his face. It's a gesture more powerful than words. It displays his humility before God and his willingness to listen. I'm going to fall on my face before you, God, in humility and a willingness to listen to you. There's no more checkbox worship going on here. If that ever was the case for Abram, it is no longer. He is on his face. He has fallen on his face. And that is actually a way to understand what we do in worship that we fall on our face. But it's a worship mingled with astonishment. In verse 17, we read that he falls on his face a second time, this time with laughter. But he's not rebuked the way Sarah, Sarah, Sarai had been earlier in her disbelief, her mocking disbelief, that kind of laughter. No, Abram is not challenging God. In fact, he's not even talking to God. He's, he's laughing to himself. He says, a man 99, a woman as, as old as Sarah to have a baby. And it's, it's more of a, an astonished laughter than a mocking disbelief. There's some astonishment there. It's worship mingled with astonishment. Do you know what that's like? Worship mingled with astonishment. Until our worship is mingled with astonishment, it can hardly be called worship. But when it is, it is that for which we were made. To have questions and doubts begin to melt away because God moves toward us in our doubts with our questions He removes the grounds of those doubts with powerful words. And we hear his voice and we trust his voice and we take hold of his promise by faith. And that leads to an astonished worship followed by a new, fresh obedience. That's what we see at the end of this chapter. That very day, verse 26, Abraham does what he was required to do that very day. It's like this. When I begin to see the beauty and the lavish love of God for me in Christ, my response, my only response can be, when I see that clearly, my only response can be, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do? That's why Abraham grabbed his 13-year-old son and the other males older than that, presumably, and some younger maybe, but bought with money to work in his home. The guys are out now. And Abram gathers them together and said, okay, guys, you're not going to like this. But let me tell you what we're going to do. A fresh obedience over objections, no doubt, 
but a fresh obedience into the response of an astonished worship. Those go together. Astonishment and fresh obedience. No matter what the cost. But there's one other thing that's new here. That he elicits a response. It's not merely astonished worship. It's not merely fresh obedience. There's a new object of faith. And we find it in verse 18 and 19. Abraham, it's not Ishmael. Your wife will bear a son, and his name is to be Isaac. Because from you will become kings, Sarah, from Sarah will come kings, and from Isaac will come kings. And of that lineage, there will be one who comes, who is the prophet, the priest, the king. And Abram doesn't know his name yet. But Abraham takes hold of faith in the promise that from Isaac, his son, will come an everlasting kingdom. And at the center of it is an everlasting king. And we know him by the name Jesus. A new, a new obedience a new object of faith. You could argue that you cannot understand the Christian faith unless you understand Genesis 17. Matthew insists that if we understand Jesus in the gospel, we must start with Abraham. That's right where he does with Matthew chapter 1. He starts with Abraham. John sees Jesus as the fulfillment of Abraham's hopes. John 8. For Paul, Abraham is the father of all who belong to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews and James both look to Abraham as the example of the life of faith. In these words before us today, God spoke the word of multiple promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will give you a land and I will give you a son and that son will be a king. The call to Abraham was to embrace God's covenant in a life of obedience, starting with circumcision. Obedience, that kind of obedience, is not the way Abraham or any of us ever enter the covenant, but the way of life in which he embraced and made that his own, the blessings sovereignly pledged to him by God's freely spoken word. All of God's promises freely spoken to you are yours that you take hold of by faith just as Abraham did. That gives us a new direction. Christianity is total surrender to the covenant God, a relationship so all-consuming that it controls every area of our lives. The gospel of salvation by faith does not jeopardize right living. Rather, it activates the conscience freed from fear by forgiveness and provides new, a new directive for life. And with all the single-mindedness of the athlete, the believer makes it his aim to please the Lord. The good he does is not an end in itself. It's something or something of which to be proud, but it is a byproduct of a greater overriding aim to be a wholehearted people. It's simply in response to what God has done for us. 
that we move out in a new direction. But we do so with a new power. We have a new ability in Christ. As one, one person said, we talk and think like this. I am a Christian. I should do this. Rather, better to think. I am your child. Empower me to do this. The first one leaves you floundering and dripping with guilt. The second is life-giving because we acknowledge the powers in God's hands. New direction, new power, but ultimately driving it all is a new assurance because you have a new name. God calls you by name and then gives you His. That's what happens in baptism. It is a name-placing... It's the... It's the, it's the rest of the story as we come forward. We, 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 we think of baptism as an entryway and a name-assigning event where God's name is placed upon us. That's certainly what Paul understood in Galatians 3. He says, For as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... You're his. And he is yours. And you belong to one who is faithful when you are not. God keeps his covenant even when we come up short. Let's pray. Father, would you seal to our hearts the the truth before us? Would you lead us forward into the kind of faith that Abraham exhibits for us? To know that we cannot make such a mess of our lives that you abandon the plan but that you have, by your foreknowledge and purpose, before the beginning of the world, set your affection on us. And you have come to us in Christ, and we we take hold of, by faith, those promises, knowing that you meet us in our doubts, you remove the grounds of those doubts by giving us a new name, and by pledging yourself to us that nothing stands between us and the love of our Father in heaven. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.